Philippians chapter 4. Notice how verse 4 begins. Rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice in the Lord always. Then he says it again. Again, I will say rejoice. Now, I think on days like this, in moments of time that we live in, we need to read passages of scripture like this and say, for real, always, even in the midst of endless cycles of gun violence and political turmoil and the pain and suffering that some of us are going through, what, what Paul says here when he adds the word always, the problem with some of us is we've read the Bible so much, we just don't even pay attention anymore, right? But when you get to that word always, doesn't it strike you as impossible and maybe even inhuman? And for that matter, maybe even unchristian? Rejoice always? Didn't Paul pay attention to the Psalms that he knew by heart that he had learned in the synagogue and the temple? What about Psalm 102? He had memorized it. When David is crying out to God, do not hide your face from me. And David says, my days pass away like smoke and my bones burn like a furnace. I forget to eat. My bones cling to my flesh. My enemies taunt me. I mingle my tears with my drink. And then he looks at God, David, in the midst of saying all this, and he, and he accuses God. He says, God, because of your anger, you have thrown me into the dust. My days are like an evening shadow. I will wither away like grass. Does Paul think that when David was praying those words in Holy Scripture, he was rejoicing? Or what about Psalm 88, when Haman the Ezrahite cries out for help day after day, asking God, why do you throw my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? And then pointing out to God, it's your wrath, God, that has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. And then he ends his prayer with one of the most haunting lines in all the Bible. Darkness is my only companion. You know people who've been there. Some of you have been there. And in those moments, when you hear Paul say in Philippians, rejoice always, don't you just want to say, your mama? <laughs> For real? What, 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 what kind of planet do you live on? I get rejoice, but always? The question is, can Paul really mean this? What about Jesus? Did Jesus rejoice always? What about when we find Jesus weeping at the grave of his friend Lazarus? Or what about the time that he's at the foot of the Mount of Transfiguration and he's overcome with disappointment when his disciples don't get it? Did Jesus rejoice in the Garden of Gethsemane? Does he rejoice when his disciples forsook him and fled him and Peter denied him when he was on trial and his accusers lied about him? Did Jesus rejoice when soldiers were mocking him and beating him and spitting on him? Is it appropriate to say to Jesus in that moment, rejoice? And I don't remember Jesus rejoicing on the cross. Don't you want to ask Paul, how are we supposed to read this? Rejoice always? Do you really expect us to do better than Jesus? The question is, is he naive or is he exaggerating for effect? The short answer is no. Paul means what he says. He is not naive. 
And he is not exaggerating for effect. Philippians is a letter of friendship. And it's written by the Apostle Paul when he's in Ephesus in the year 55 AD. Now, why, the reason that's important is that Paul had gone to Philippi to start the Christian movement there, to plant this church. And he had done that in the year 49 AD, five or six years before this moment. Now, we don't know how long Paul stayed in Philippi, but what we do know is why he left Philippi. You see, a few years before writing this letter, Paul and his friend Silas got invited to meet a mob that was very angry and started assaulting them. And in response to this mob situation, the police showed up and arrested Paul and Silas and beat Paul and Silas and imprisoned them and finally released them and ran them out of town. That's how the church in Philippi got started. The church was birthed in the context of hostility and conflict and the suffering of police brutality and mob assault and a corrupt justice system. In fact, look just a few sections before this. Look at Philippians chapter 1. Notice verse 27. Here's Paul, same letter, writing to these these Christians in Philippi, and he says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. And that, and that is from God, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. The Christians in Philippi are suffering still. Five years later, six years later, they have enemies and these enemies are harming them. And and that's not the only way they suffer. We know from 2 Corinthians chapter 8 that they are also in a state of extreme, desolate poverty. So it's, it's one thing to be in utter poverty and another that people are assaulting you in your most vulnerable moment. So Paul is in Ephesus and he's writing this letter to these people in this situation. And here's another very important detail. You know what he's doing in Ephesus? He's in jail. He's suffering in jail. He's not in a safe hotel on a kind of middle-class, white, empowered, elite perch, spouting off platitudes. He's, He's profoundly suffering in jail. And he's writing this and he's in jail because he's been arrested again for a same reason, because he's a Christian. And he's writing this letter to his friends in Philippi from jail. And that is just the tip of the iceberg of Paul's life. The Paul who writes to them to rejoice always, think those of you who know about this Paul, think about some of the things he goes through in his life. Some of the things that some of us wouldn't go through in 10 lifetimes, prisons beating beyond count, whipped by the Jews five times, beaten with rods three times, stoned three times, shipwrecked, threatened by the sea, by highway robbers, by hypocritical Christians, and always anxious about the state of the churches that he planted. 
Just a few sentences past our, beyond our passage for this morning, Paul lays out some of the circumstances in which he rejoices. He knows what it means to rejoice when he has nothing. He knows what it means to be without basic necessities. He knew what it was to be in want, to be without. Yet the same Paul who experiences hunger and need and unanswered prayers exhorts the Philippians, rejoice always. Paul means it. You can't let him off the hook here by saying he's exaggerating for effect or he's naive to real suffering. And when you do that, when you stop and say always, and you don't do the lazy route out of saying he's either naive or just being using some rhetorical effect, when you stop there, suddenly what opens up in front of you is the powerful reality that Paul is trying to bring us to. You see, we need to shift our question. Instead of questioning Paul's sincerity, his intellect, or his experience, or doubting his honesty, you need to ask the question, how? How? How am I supposed to rejoice when life is beating me down, when my addictions are winning, when I feel suddenly that the journey I'm on is going down, 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 down. How am I supposed to rejoice when all that is happening in our lives in this world is swelling up to a cacophonous, horrible, evil din of confusion? Paul points to how in the next verse, in verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Paul can rejoice always and in every circumstance because the Lord is at hand. You see, throughout Scripture, joy is an effect of being in the presence of God. The sanctuary was the place of God's presence on earth. And before his face, Israel was taught and invited to eat and drink and rejoice. Psalm 16, verse 11. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. Psalm 21, verse 6. You make the king glad with joy in your presence. Psalm 95, verse 2. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. And of course, our psalm for this morning, Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Jump to that tiny little book in the New Testament, Jude. and Remember how it ends, praising Jesus Christ who is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. You see, joy all through the Bible is an effect of being in the presence of God because the Lord himself is full of the fullness of joy. That's what we learned about in, in, in the passage that Joetta read to us from the book of Zephaniah. Listen again to Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 14. 
Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. So here is Yahweh chasing away the enemies of Jerusalem and rescuing the lame and the outcast and all the evils that Judah has suffered are being reversed and they will, there will be a new creation when God gathers his people. Israel's day of gloom, so graphically described in the first chapters of Zephaniah, Israel's day of gloom turns to a day of light and joy. Why? The whole hinge of the book is because Yahweh himself comes to be in the midst of his people. Listen again to Zephaniah 3.17, one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Here is Yahweh in the midst of his people. He's a victorious warrior shouting and rejoicing over his bride. And Israel is caught up in that exaltation. Daughter Zion is supposed to shout for joy. Why? Because Yahweh is in her midst, rejoicing with shouts of joy. Israel is supposed to rejoice and exult with all her heart. Why? Because Yahweh, her lover, has returned and is exulting over her. This is not merely a matter of Israel responding to Yahweh's joy. It's about Israel being caught up into the joy of Yahweh himself. Yahweh comes rejoicing to his people and he comes dancing and singing and exulting and he comes triumphant and daughter Zion and daughter Jerusalem are supposed to jump up into the song, jump up into the dance. And this prophecy is the reason a bunch of songs start breaking out at Jesus' birth. All over the first chapters of Luke, there's singing, there's joy. This is the reason that joy happens when Jesus is born. As soon as the announcement is made about the birth of Jesus, song starts breaking out. It's like reading Tolkien. You can't go five pages without some weird dwarf song. Here they are. As soon as the announcement is made, Mary starts singing when, uh, when she visits Elizabeth. Zachariah starts singing when John is named. The angels start singing when they talk to the shepherd. Simeon starts singing when he sees the infant in the temple. Everywhere the news goes, song breaks out. Why? Because in the presence of God is joy. Here is Yahweh returning to the midst of his people. And when Jesus grows into a man, think about his miracles and his ministry. They are evidence that the time has come, the day of light and joy that Zephaniah spoke of. Jesus' deeds, his miracles, his teachings, they show that Yahweh has come into the midst of Israel, exulting in joy, singing over his bride like a victorious warrior. Just think about Jesus striding his way through Israel. That is the victorious warrior singing his way over the people. Remember the prophecy from Zephaniah, chapter 3, verse 19. I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame 
into praise. Isn't that what happens throughout Jesus's ministry? Can't you think of stories where he's turning shame into praise and death into life? The lame are healed. The outcasts are given new life. Think of all those whom Jesus delivered from sickness and shame and guilt. You see, Jesus is the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. Jesus is the king. He is Yahweh himself coming to the midst of his people. And the joy that filled the air when the angels sang his birth, the joy, that is the joy of Yahweh overflowing as God is giving new life to the lame and the outcasts. Now we're ready to hear what Paul is saying in Philippians chapter 4. Paul tells us to rejoice always. And what is his reason? The Lord is at hand. Because of the Lord's arrival and presence, we can rejoice in every circumstance. Paul in prison can write to his friends who are suffering. King Jesus has come into our midst. And when he ascended into heaven, he poured out his spirit to fill us with his presence. And we can rejoice in every circumstance because God is never distant. That's what our father who is in heaven means. It doesn't mean he's way out there past Pluto in some planet yet to be discovered called heaven. It means our father who is near to me. He is nearer to you than anyone else. He is even closer to you than you are to yourself. When we suffer hardships and needs, we should remember, we should remind ourselves, God is here. I am still in the presence of God. And so because of that, I can rejoice. As the psalmist puts it so eloquently, Psalm 139, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me up. If I say, surely darkness will cover me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not, and if you have this memorized, dark to you. The night to you is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. King Jesus in our midst, he's poured out his spirit upon us. We are filled with his spirit, but we don't always know that. We don't always feel that. We don't always remember that. We don't always know that he's here. God is always here, but sometimes we cry out and he doesn't seem to to answer us. He doesn't seem to hear us. Sometimes we're on the cross and we cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How can we rejoice when we cry out and he doesn't do anything? What happens when we desperately want God to close the mouth of the lion and he doesn't? When my mother dies and my husband is betraying me, when I don't know where the next paycheck is coming from, when work expects more from me than one person could possibly do, when I wake up in the middle of the night covered in a cold sweat because the waves of stress are overcoming me, what is happening 
when I fail the test, when I've lost the love of my life, when my child dies, when my body turns against me, when broken and rotting relationships are littering the ground of my life, when again and again my parents don the well-worn garments of their disapproval and disappointment in me, what does it mean to rejoice in times like that? When Jesus does not descend with the angels and he does not stop the murder, he does not stop the gunmen in Uvalde, he does not stop the war in Ukraine? What's going on when he isn't there, when there is no sign of his nearness or his coming? Well, Paul has something more dramatic in mind for us. For Paul, we rejoice always, not only because the Lord is always near to us, but because by the gift of his spirit, there's something else going on here. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice because the Lord is near Paul is not only talking about nearness in terms of space, he's also talking about nearness in terms of time. Paul is using a double entendre, the Lord is at hand. Not only is Christ near to us physically, his return is near. We are preparing, waiting, longing, expecting Christ to return, to finish his work, to put evil to death, and to finally and forever remove all of the darkness in our hearts that's enslaving us and tripping us up and imprisoning us to end the corruption and end the destruction and to make everything new again. And because this is going to happen, we can rejoice. Rejoice because the Lord is at hand. And this is why we can rejoice even on days like today. We rejoice in the presence of the Lord, sharing his joy. And in these moments, in his presence and his joy, our joy in these kind of moments is sometimes more hoped for joy than known joy. Our joy is a joy and hope. In his letter to the Romans at one point, Paul, he's talking about joy, even in the times of suffering. And he says this, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Our rejoicing is not burying our head in the sand. Our rejoicing is not that we are ignoring the pain and because the, or thinking the pain isn't real. We rejoice in tribulations, not because one day we're going to escape this. We rejoice in tribulations because we know that the darkness of this moment is not final. We rejoice in the hope of glory, not because the joy is fully realized here and now, but because it will be realized in the future. And in doing this, we are following Jesus. Like the writer to the Hebrews wrote, Jesus went to the cross out of the joy that was before him, set before him, past the cross. After Friday, he despised the shame of the cross, but he rejoiced because of the joy that was in front of him. So even now, when so much in your life and my life stands against joy, when the Lord has hidden his face, and he doesn't have, he hasn't given any clue that he's going to show it again. Even in the midst of searing loneliness and loss and grief and tragedy. And on a Juneteenth, as we celebrate the end of chattel slavery, but know that there is so much more to be done. 
even now we can rejoice because we can rejoice in hope. As we despise what happens, what is happening, we rejoice that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. That death will be no more. That neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. All of this will be gone. So here in Philippians, here is Paul, who is suffering deeply, writing to the Philippians who are suffering deeply. And like Paul, like the Philippians, we can rejoice in hope. Because the advent of the Lord is at hand. The Lord so loves the world that he gave his only son. He became flesh for you. He suffered all the limits and frustrations of life for you. He was hated and oppressed for you. He was arrested and tried for you. He was mocked and scourged and spat upon for you. He was sent to the cross for you. He has come for you and he won't leave you. And he will return for you. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Why? Because the Lord is at hand. Even in the midst of inexplainable horror. Even in a world of randomly murdered children. In the face of hurricanes and tornadoes that demolish families. And car wrecks and illnesses and suffering of every imaginable kind. We know that the Lord is near. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And one last thing. Rejoicing is a chosen activity, not a waited upon mood. When he says rejoice here, he's not saying wait and the mood will hit you. He's saying do something. Do the activity. Rejoice. He's using a verb and it's a verb that In its original language means keep doing it, continually do it. When you wake up in the morning, choose the activity of rejoicing. And throughout your day, find moments to choose to rejoice. And before you go to sleep at night, choose to rejoice. It's something you do. It's something you do with your tongue and your lips and your vocal cords. It's not a mood. It's not something to think. It's something to do. You rejoice in songs and words and prayers. We're commanded to do this. In moments like we live in, we sing, rejoicing with tears streaming down our faces. We sing because of our sure hope. Christ is coming. He will repair everything that's broken. Goodness will triumph. When that grips our heart and imagination, joy at some point will come out because we trust God to ultimately take care of our enemies, to bring justice, and to make all things new. Continually rejoice. Not in mood, But in choice, vocalize it in songs and words. And so you do it so frequently with discipline that it becomes a habit. And when a group, when a group like us, when a church, when this becomes a group habit for a church going through the pains and sufferings of life, when it becomes a skill we learn to do over and over in good times and in bad times, even in the direst of circumstances, when rejoicing becomes a matter-of-fact practice in your family and in my family and in this church family, 
When we learn the skill of rejoicing in the hope of glory, we will be remade into the image of God. We will become like God, able to rejoice. What I'm saying is that rejoicing is a moral choice and not rejoicing is an immoral choice. Rejoicing is a habit we learn over time that bends our souls. And it nurtures and shapes our souls. And as you learn and I learn to do this in tiny everyday ways, we will be equipped to do it in the darkness overwhelmed by profound evil. We have to practice daily rejoicing. And as we do it, it will swell up into something astonishing, something that can teach our children the hope of the resurrection and give us all a taste of the kingdom. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice because the Lord is at hand. 